relationships. You know, God created us to be in relationships with him and with others, of course. In fact, he hardwired us to be in relationships. The problem is, as John Tyson put it in the video, relationships can get messy, right? They aren't always easy. They aren't always fun, sometimes by a long shot. In fact, uh, sometimes relationships can be just downright miserable. And when you mix in the stresses and pressures of life, our relationships at times can really suffer. And so there are times in our lives when our relationships, both with other people and with God, are tested. We all go through times of testing in this journey in life. And depending upon our response to that testing, our relationships can either flourish or they can suffer. In fact, uh, they can suffer to the point of extinction, right? Sometimes relationships end. And uh, there are far more reasons for that, of course, than we could ever cover today. But stress, fear, and misunderstanding are all at the top of the list of causes for failed relationships. We see it all the time, especially in marriages that are breaking down. Stress, fear, and misunderstanding can drive people to stop interacting with one another and start reacting to one another. And so the moment you begin reacting to one another more than you interact with one another is typically never good for a relationship. But we get stressed about life about circumstances, and then we become fearful for the future, for the unknown that is ahead of us, which becomes a breeding ground often for misunderstanding. And instead of pressing into the relationship in those times of testing and communicating better and growing through it, often we, we pull back. We isolate ourselves from one another, and then with enough misunderstanding born out of stress and fear, we sometimes find it easier to just walk away from that relationship rather than staying with it. And yet, even though we cannot always clearly see a way out of a hard circumstance or immediately overcome our fears or even even know with certainty what the future may hold when we're going through times of testing, we can choose to stay with it and grow and learn through it and become better at our relationships. But unfortunately, Many do not choose that path. Many just walk away because, number one, it can require a lot less effort from us. And number two, we believe it gives us control back in that relationship. When we decide to walk away, we no longer feel that we're at the mercy of stress and fear and misunderstanding, at least in the context of of being in that relationship. And that makes us feel empowered True or not, it makes us feel in control again, when in actuality, that is just one of the more common lies that the enemy of our souls uses to keep us from growing up. Now, understand, please, I'm not talking about relationships that are abusive. There are uh, plenty of those, unfortunately, which means there are legitimate reasons for some relationships to end. Sometimes certain relationships, particularly those which are abusive, need to end, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about times of testing where God allows in our lives and in our relationships circumstances that can cause stress and fear and misunderstanding if we allow them to. But the thing is, God is just as sovereign over our difficulties as he is over our triumphs, which means there's always a reason for times of testing, in our lives, and often that reason is for the purpose of maturing us, of growing us up so that our, our lives and our relationships will become stronger. 
So last week we talked about the difference between having a religion that teaches us about God or an active relationship that we can have with God and how at the end of the day, God wants us to be devoted to a relationship with him rather than to a religion that is about him. And in our text today, John, after establishing in the last chapter that Jesus wants a relationship with us, he dives even deeper into this subject with an extraordinary look into Jesus' relationships with his own followers through some very famous stories uh, as they encounter stress and fear and misunderstanding together during some difficult times of testing. And so we're going to look at these stories that you're probably very familiar with, but possibly from a different perspective than you may be used to, because it's, it's easy to read about Jesus feeding thousands of people with a little bit of bread and fish and then talk about God's miraculous provision, or to look at Jesus walking on the water and then talk about him being Lord over the storm. And all of that is true, but there is such an intensely personal and deeply beautiful undercurrent in these stories about relationships that are being tested together as Jesus chooses to interact with his friends even while they are reacting to some pretty harsh circumstances. And I actually believe, although rarely talked about, that the principal lessons being taught in these stories are really found in these quiet personal interactions between Jesus and his disciples during these miraculous events, not in the miracles themselves. And so as we continue working our way through the book, uh, the gospel according to John, the story of Jesus and these compelling relationships that he has continues to unfold as John paints uh, quite a picture for us of how Jesus chooses to attend to those whom he loves when our relationships are being tested, when they become riddled with stress and fear and misunderstanding. And the truth of it is just uh, glorious, as we'll see. So let's jump into the story right where we left off last week with a message entitled, This is a Test. And uh, this is one of the longer chapters, maybe the longest chapter, I think, in John's gospel account. So Today is going to be part one of this message, which we will finish up next Sunday as we work our way through the rest of the chapter. And the stories uh, in this chapter are so compelling that it moves along uh, pretty quickly anyway. So let's begin with chapter six of the gospel according to John, verses one through three. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. <clears throat> so Jesus and his disciples walk up a mountain in what is known today as the Golan Heights. It's just east of the Sea of Galilee, which is the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's about 13 miles long and seven miles wide. It's, it's fed into the north by the Jordan River, and then it empties out into the Jordan River as well on the southern end. And interestingly enough, as a side note, by the way, a first century Galilean fishing boat was excavated on the shore of the Sea of Galilee by archaeologists in 1986, and it perfectly fits the description of the boats used by Jesus and his disciples. And if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, when Jesus was first calling his disciples, it says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
And of course, we don't know, uh, but it's fun to speculate about that possibly being first the boat that Jesus and his disciples later used, and maybe even the same one that was excavated in 1986. Kind of uncommon to leave a boat in that day just sitting by the sea. So we don't know, of course, but uh, kind of fun to think about that. Anyway, Jesus now goes up this mountain and he sits down with his disciples only to look back down behind them and witness what would become the first great test of their faith in and the relationship with Jesus in our story today. Let's keep reading verses four and five. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, as we'll see in just a moment, there are about 5,000 men in this crowd that was coming up to see Jesus, and that was just the men. Most scholars and historians estimate, uh, including women and children, there was actually probably upwards of 20,000 people or more altogether in this crowd. 20,000 hungry people making their way toward Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus, their leader, the one with all the answers... Right? The one they had given up their lives and livelihoods to follow. The miracle worker who always seemed to know just what to do in a crisis, which they'd witnessed ever since he turned the water into wine and averted disaster at the wedding feast. This same Jesus that they all looked to answers for turns to Philip as this horde of hungry people, 20,000 strong, are working their way toward them. And he says, hey, Phil... How are we going to feed these people? Talk about unexpected. Talk about the last thing that Philip probably ever thought he would hear from Jesus. And I'm sure the last thing that he ever wanted to hear from Jesus, which amounted in his mind to an, uh-oh, what do we do now? This is like that moment when that person that you're dating or that person that you're married to or that friend that has made such a profound difference in your life says something that you never thought you would hear them say. And you begin to think maybe he isn't exactly the person that I thought he was. Talk about stress. I mean, that can really stress a relationship when someone throws you a curveball out of nowhere. 20,000 hungry people coming toward you and Jesus looking for Jesus to provide for them. And Jesus asks you for your opinion. Thankfully, there is a verse six that changes everything. It says he said this as, uh, to test him. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. So, of course, we know now that this was a test. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was testing his followers. The problem is they didn't have verse six at the time to refer to. They didn't know this was a test. All that they knew was that Jesus, Jesus himself, didn't seem to know what to do in that moment. And you can almost hear the sheer panic in their voices as they respond. Verses 7 through 9. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Right? The average wage for a day's work at that time was one denarius. So 200 denarii was over eight months pay if you figure working six days a week. So Jesus asked Philip about a plan for providing for all of these people. And Philip says, look, you could work for eight months 
and spend every bit of it on bread and you wouldn't have enough for everyone to even get a taste. And then Andrew walks over and at first it seems like he may actually be showing some signs of great faith. He says, hey, there's a kid over here who has five loaves of bread and two fish. And if he had just stopped talking right there, we could infer that maybe he was suggesting that Jesus had something he could work with in his great faith that Jesus could do anything, except that Andrew doesn't stop there. Unfortunately, he keeps talking and he says, but what good will that do for so many people? And all the while, 20,000 or so hungry people are pressing in on them. This must have been an incredibly stressful situation. I mean, if Jesus doesn't know what to do, what in the world can be done? This is an impossible situation for the disciples. Impossible. And yet in Luke 18, 27, Jesus said what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, it wasn't that Jesus was at a loss for what to do, right? Verse 6 says that he himself knew what he would do. Jesus wasn't the least bit stressed. This was a test. Jesus wanted to test their faith, and he knew they didn't have the answer, so he was trying to teach them. He was trying to show them that even though you may be going through a seemingly impossible trial in your life or in your relationships, you don't have to succumb to overwhelming stress because God has the answers to the test. Jesus could have solved the problem in any number of ways before the situation even became a situation. We know they had a boat, right? They were on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and several of them were professional fishermen. Right? We see earlier in Luke chapter 5 and later in this gospel in chapter 21 where Jesus causes them to catch more fish than they could handle. He could have had them go out and bring back in literally boatloads of fish for everyone, but he didn't. He could have supernaturally made everyone feel full without ever having to provide any food. And they wouldn't even know they were hungry. But he didn't. He could have made bread and fish appear right where each one of them was sitting. But he didn't. He could have averted the situation in any number of ways. But he didn't. He allowed the situation to develop into a crisis. And then instead of waving his hand and making all of the hunger go away, he turns to his followers, his friends, and he says, Hey guys, what do you think we should do? This was a test. And I find it to be very telling that he allowed them to feel the weight of the stress of that situation. He allowed them to wrestle with the reality of the problem. And it was a real problem. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He had already made provision for the need long before. But he allowed his followers to grapple with the situation before meeting the need. He didn't abandon them. He didn't leave them to their own devices, but he also didn't make the trouble go away immediately either. Instead, in the heat of the crisis, he takes the time to pause and have quiet conversation with them. I find this fascinating. Why would he do that? To teach them right in the middle of their difficult circumstances, right when the stress levels were white hot, because that is where we are most receptive to learning. When, when the stress is about to boil over and we can't see any way out of our situation, most people will typically become very receptive to help from outside sources. 
Times of crisis can be some of the greatest teaching moments in our lives as long as we're willing to listen to his voice in the midst of that crisis. And that's what was happening here. Jesus wanted them to learn to have faith, to believe in him in the midst of an otherwise impossible situation. And equally compelling is the fact that he allowed them to reach near panic levels is the fact that when he did provide the solution, it was anything but instantaneous. Okay, there was no immediate fix for the problem. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 14. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. If you read the other accounts and the other gospels, this is the only miracle other than Jesus's resurrection that is recorded in all four gospels. If you go back and read all of the other accounts, you see that Jesus gave thanks and he gave the food to the disciples and told them to serve the people. How long do you think it took for these men with empty stomachs under intense stress to feed 20,000 or more people? Right? Even when Jesus began to meet the need for his followers, their hunger pains continued for a long time. They had to faithfully and obediently serve 20,000 plus people, bread and fish, before they could ever feel the effects of God's provision for their own need. Verse 13 says, at the end of this miracle event, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, one for each disciple. So finally, after this massive crowd of people has eaten, there's a basket of food left over for each one. Their relief came. After a lot of stress and hand-wringing over what to do. And then after they had to continue serving Christ in the body and ministry to others. In other words, they had to keep being faithful in their service to God before they ever experienced relief and resolve for their situation. Right? When, when crisis comes, when stressful situations arise and your relationships come under intense pressure, especially our relationship with God. It is paramount that we understand, first of all, that God has already provided the answers for the test that you're experiencing. He's already provided for that. The need has already been provided for. He's not stressed or worried about what to do or what will happen next. And secondly, once he begins to show you that provision, it may take some time yet, maybe quite a long time before the situation is completely resolved. But why? Well, often it's because he's trying to teach us to trust him and to have faith in him as we go through that process. And sometimes it's a lengthy process of being faithful, even when it's difficult. Sometimes healing is immediate. And sometimes it's a process that involves doctors and medicine and treatment and therapy and long recovery times. That isn't any less God's provision than an instantaneous healing. Sometimes our relationships experience a breakthrough and we immediately begin to feel the effects of freedom and restoration and forgiveness. 
And yet sometimes it takes months or years of counseling and a ton of work together to get to that place of freedom and restoration and complete forgiveness. I mean, think about it. If Jesus had waved his hand and made the problem go away, no doubt that would have taught them something. But how much more effectively do you think the lesson was drilled into their hearts and minds as they took from one little basket of bread and fish for who knows how many hours over and over and over and over and over again coming back to get a little bread and fish for every single person? I guarantee you that is a lesson that none of them ever forgot. But they needed to go through the process, a lengthy process to get everything that Jesus was trying to teach them. And you know that entire time as they were handing out the bread and fish, probably starving themselves, smelling that food, watching all those people dig in. You know they were learning a difficult lesson. They were hungry. They were tired. They were humiliated. Philip failed the test. Andrew failed the test. And yet when they were all done faithfully carrying out the ministry that Jesus set them out to do in their hunger and in their exhaustion and in their humiliation, he provides a meal for them as well. And it was more than enough. The need was totally met, probably not in the way that the disciples wanted it to be or expected it to be. But God has the answers to the test. We don't. And yet even in their failure, Jesus loved them and provided for them. And they learned a great lesson in the process, which was that faithfulness is greater than a full stomach. Right? God has already provided for our lack. He's already provided for your need. He's just trying to teach us to trust him for that provision in the meantime. St. Augustine once wrote, God loves us for what we are becoming. You see, he not only knows what we're going to go through before we even go through it. He's not only made provision for our needs even before we experience the need, but he knows who we are becoming even before we get there. Right? Tests will come by God's design. Tests will come and sometimes he allows us to feel the weight, the burden, the stress of those situations to test us and to teach us. And so when crisis hits in our relationships... That is not the time to bail out on the relationship. That's not the time to quit. But that is exactly what a lot of people do. A lot of people do just that. When they begin to feel the stress, the pressure in their relationships, they think this shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't be feeling this way. It shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be painful. It shouldn't be difficult. And so they bail out. And what happens when we quit the test is we never learn the lesson that we were intended to learn. And so we run headlong into a new relationship. And more often than not, we find ourselves right back in the same situations, same story, different characters, because we never allowed ourselves to learn the lesson that we needed to learn the first time. This is why we see so many people in counseling who go from one failed relationship to the next, one after another, after another, after another, dealing with the same problems each time because they bail out before the test is over. And so they never learn. They never grow. They never experience God's provision in their life. And so they live from one wanting relationship to the next, never satisfied and never growing. I believe this is why some people uh, stop following Jesus. 
Because when times get difficult and God says, I want you to continue to serve me even though you're still hungry, there's still need, you're still tired, you're still humiliated, even though I didn't meet the need that you, like you thought I would, even though the struggle may still be there, I want you in the middle of that to continue to serve me. But instead, many people just bail out on God because they're not willing to let God teach them through that struggle. They're not willing to be hungry. They're not willing to be tired, to be humiliated, and so they walk away and they never learn. They never grow. Okay, look, we're going to be tested, but rest assured, God has the answers to the test. And sometimes we have to go through a process of learning before the test is over. Let's keep reading verses 15 through 21. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. You think so? But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going, to which they were going. Now, in typical John fashion, when he writes, he focuses more on who Jesus is rather than what Jesus did, which is one of the things I love about the Gospel of John. It's wonderful. But it's also beneficial to read the accounts of these events by other, uh, the other Gospel writers because we not only get some more detail in some cases, but also some more insight into their state of mind when all of this was happening, because if all that we do is read this part of the story, if, if we just read John's account, it, it really sounds fairly innocuous, fairly uh, laid back. Like, uh, who is that walking on the water? Oh, we're afraid. And then he says, it's me. And they say, oh, come on in. And everybody's great. It just seems like this sort of minor event that was mentioned. But there's a lot more going on here, okay? The, the Sea of Galilee, first of all, is uh, 600 feet below sea level, and it's often subject to violent storms because these gales of wind uh, blow off of the Mediterranean through the mountains and right across this lake, the Sea of Galilee, without warning. And so uh, it's like a wind tunnel there at times, which means that occasionally there are these vicious, violent storms that arise. And so we get a bit more of that detail in some of the other gospel accounts of this event. Let's jump over to Matthew uh, chapter 14, and we'll read verses 24 through 33. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amazing. Hey, the fourth watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And considering the description of these events, if you read all the accounts, it was probably closer 
to dawn, closer to 6 a.m. than it was to 3 a.m. But the point is, they'd been out there rowing their boat for a very long time, all night. They had to be completely exhausted. Matthew says the boat was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So this must have been a terrifying situation to be in, rowing literally all night against the wind and the waves. And yet Jesus, knowing their situation, lets them experience every bit of that. In Mark's account of this event, he says, and he, referring to Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus knew exactly what his friends were going through. All right, he's watching them. Now listen to this part. Mark says, referring to Jesus, he meant to pass by them. So that makes me laugh. Jesus sees these guys out there about to drown in this boat. He knows the danger they're in. And so he decides to walk across the lake with the intention of walking right by them to the other shore and then just waiting over there for them to get there. But it says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It's a beautiful picture of how I think sometimes we're in situations that God has well under control, that we're not going to drown, we're not going to die. But even so, in our fear, when we cry out to him, he responds. Even though if he didn't, we'd still be okay. You understand what I'm saying? I was, I was driving home one day from work. I was 18 years old, and I had this little sports car. It was more plastic than it was metal. It was a little Pontiac Fiero, if you remember those. It was a cool car at the time. And I left my job, and I was driving home, and uh, it was, the music was way too loud. It was the speakers and the headrest. It was a cool car. And I had the music cranking, and I was coming up on this set of railroad tracks that didn't have the gates like we have now. You know what I'm saying? There were no lights and all. It was just a railroad crossing sign and a railroad track. And I was driving up to the railroad track, and out of the corner of my eye, and I'm full speed, I, I see something coming in my peripheral vision, and I slam on the brakes. And my car slides to a stop, and the front end of my car is sitting over the railroad tracks, and the train is bearing down on me. And I completely panicked. And I'm trying to get the car in gear in reverse to go backwards. I probably should have just kept going forward and would have been okay. But I'm sitting on the tracks and the train is bearing down on me and I'm screaming, Jesus, save me, literally, out loud in that moment as I ram the thing into reverse and hit the gas. But it's too late. And the train smacks the front end of my car. My car spins around. And there I am, right beside the railroad tracks, train going by, my car shaking. I can hardly breathe. And so the train never stopped. He went on and disappeared. And I unrolled the window, and I I thought I couldn't get my door open. turns out it was locked. (laughs) I was in such a panic, I thought the car was mangled. And I crawled out the window, and I laid on the ground for a a while. And uh, the front end of my car, thank the Lord, it was a plastic car. Because it had torn up the front end of my car, right? And, uh, but it didn't, it didn't destroy the car. And so I actually got in it and drove back home. i never forget. I walked in the house and uh, mom said, how are you doing? I said, I'm okay. She said, uh, you look white as a ghost. She said, is everything okay? I said, yeah, I, th- I think I'm okay. I had a little accident on the way home. She said, oh, what happened? I said, well, I got hit by a train. <laughs> she said, Joe, get down here. So, Yes, 
I probably would have been fine in that moment. In fact, I probably could have just kept driving right to the other side of those tracks. But in my panic, I lost, I lost it and, and could have died because of my panic. And I cried out and Jesus was there just like that. I actually believe uh, in that moment that the Holy Spirit helped me move that car out of the way just enough to keep from getting killed. And so here's Jesus knowing what these guys are going through. And he allows them to be tired, to be afraid, to struggle their way through the storm to the point that he was apparently going to let them deal with it all the way to the other side of the sea until they all started screaming. And what does he do? He veers off his course and he comes to them immediately. And I'm sure it's not lost on you that there are a lot of similarities here with the story that we just went through. Jesus sees them struggling. He sees them afraid and allows them to remain in that situation for quite a long time before he intervenes. Why would he do that? Because he was testing them. Jesus wasn't in a panic. He wasn't fearful. And notice that he didn't calm the storm before he got to them. He allows the storm to continue. And then at the most frightening moment of that test, he reveals himself to them. Okay, God not only has the answers to the test that you're going through, but he reveals himself in the test. He revealed himself to his followers as their provider when he fed the multitude of people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And he reveals himself as God over all creation when he walks on the water and calms the storm. And both of those revelations, by the way, came by great way of testing. Great testing in their lives. Uh, and by the way, like Philip and Andrew... Peter as well failed the test. He took his eyes off Jesus in the midst of the storm and put his focus on the wind and the waves instead of the one who created the wind and the waves. And this is so typical of so many of us when we experience turbulent struggles in life and in our relationships. So often God allows us to go through times of testing in life because he wants to reveal himself to us. And yet in our stress and in our fear, we turn our focus away from him and onto the struggle itself. But if we'll just keep our eyes fixed on him, he will reveal himself as the God who is over every fear and in control of our every struggle. That is the reason that we don't have to be afraid when we find ourselves in unusually difficult or unexpected circumstances. You see, it's not because of what he does. It's because of who he is. And that is ultimately what he's trying to reveal to us in our greatest times of need. In fact, when you read this passage in the ancient Greek that it was written in the significance of the revelation of Christ to his disciples in that moment of their greatest fear is, is deeply profound. You see, when John says in verses 19 and 20 that they were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus wasn't merely saying it's me, Jesus, don't be afraid. When he said it is I, he said, ego me." That's a quote from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament taken from Exodus 3.14, where God the Father himself identifies himself as I am who I am. You see, Jesus wasn't just saying, don't be afraid, it's me. He was saying, don't be afraid because I am God and I am here. He was using the test that they were in to reveal himself as the great I am, which he repeats about himself on numerous occasions throughout this gospel. We'll see it several times more. This is one of the reasons that he allows us to go through difficult tests in life. 
because he wants to reveal himself as God who is greater than our struggles, greater than our fears, and Lord over every one of our circumstances. He is the great I am. And so sometimes he allows us to feel the effects of the wind and the waves. Sometimes we get battered by the storm in the process, but it's all a part of the test. It's a part of growing and learning and becoming stronger and wiser and more faithful. And again, I find it so striking that instead of commanding the storm to cease or instead of rushing in to save the day, he just calmly walks out to them and reassures them not that everything is going to be okay, even though he knew that it would, not that the storm would end soon. He doesn't even say, don't worry, I'm not going to let you drown, which I'm sure would have been a great comfort in that moment. But Jesus doesn't say any of those things. He simply tells them while the storm is raging all around them, right in the thick of it, he simply reminds them who he is. He reveals himself to them. He says, I am the great I am and I am here. Listen, when we are beset with fear, we don't need to understand what's going to happen next nearly as much as we need to understand exactly who God is in that moment. When we're paralyzed with anxiety, when our relationships are under tremendous stress and we become fearful because the future is uncertain, what we need more than anything else in that moment is a revelation of who God is. We must learn to look to God first and allow that revelation of who he is in your life to take hold in those moments when you're most afraid. Because that understanding of who God is will bring you infinitely more peace and reassurance than any set of circumstances ever could. The bottom line is we're going to experience testing in our lives and in our relationships. Everyone does. And at times in those tests, we may even fail. Philip failed the test. Andrew failed the test. Peter failed the test. But don't miss the fact that even though they failed, Jesus never abandoned them. He was right there to teach them, to show them who he was. He was there to provide for their every need, to reach down and pull them out of the water and protect them from the storm. Jesus never left them as they were being tested. He was always there teaching, providing, protecting, even from the shore. He was watching them. We can let stress and fear drive us away from him and from others. And next week we're going to talk about misunderstanding as we finish the chapter. But we have to choose before those tests come. We have to choose to be faithful in our relationships even when we're lacking, even when we're tired, even in humiliation and even when we fail. We have to choose to be faithful in those relationships. If you walk out on your family, if you walk out on your spouse, if you walk out on your kids, if you walk out on your church, if you walk out on your friends, when everything isn't rosy, you're never going to find the fulfilling relationships that every one of us desires. You have to choose to stay the course. But there are a lot of people who would just rather walk away than to have to remain faithful in those hard times, those times that require so much of us, and we'll see that next week particularly. But it's those who walk away that never learn. They never grow, they never become stronger, and so they repeat the same mistakes and experience the same failures over and over again in their lives. Okay, but if you want your relationships to be strong, to be solid, to endure, 
then you have to choose now before those times of testing come because they're going to come. Choose now to remain to be faithful, to serve no matter how much it hurts or how tired you are or how much need there is. Okay? And again, I'm not talking about expressly abusive relationships. You understand the difference. There are times when relationships need to end, when there needs to be separation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when we fail, when, when we are humiliated, when we don't get along, when there is a wedge between us because of circumstances, there's stress, there is fear, there's misunderstanding. Again, there may be great failure in the relationship. We don't walk away. Because if you stay the course through the test, you will learn so much, you will grow so much, and you will know him so much better as he reveals himself to you, and he will in that test. Okay, these stories in John are much more than the miracles themselves. When Jesus was confronted with the multitude of hungry people, he wasn't focused in that moment with the miracle that he was about to perform. He was focused on teaching his disciples. When they were all in a boat in great danger, Jesus wasn't focused on calming the storm. He was focused on teaching his disciples. He was focused on his relationship with them. And even though they failed, they learned crucial lessons. Why? Because they stayed with him. They didn't tuck tail and run. They didn't look for someone else to follow. They didn't try to make excuses for themselves for why they failed. They simply obeyed the voice of God and he continually revealed himself to them. And you see that revelation come to them in layers throughout the gospel. These stories should fundamentally change the way that we view times of testing in our lives and in our relationships. Tests can be opportunities for us to leave or they can become opportunities for us to learn. In James 1, the brother of Jesus writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness, let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, count it all joy. Are you kidding me? When we meet trials of various kinds, I'm still working on this one which he says are tests meant to make us perfect and complete. See, that, that's an imperative. If we are to live counter to the culture, which teaches us that relationships, even marriages, are just meant for a season, and then when it gets tough, just walk away and look for a new one. Our culture teaches us to run from trials, while Jesus and his followers teach us to embrace our trials. In 1886, the great Scottish minister Alexander McLaren wrote about this passage in John. He said this, The end of life is to make men. The meaning of all events is to mold character. Anything that makes me stronger is a blessing. Anything that develops my morale is the highest good that can come to me. That is antithetical to the overriding theme of our society today, which teaches us that we should always have the best because we deserve it, that we should always try to numb the pain, blame someone else, and demand something for nothing because someone else surely owes it to us. But we are the church. We are God's people. And we are to be an example to the rest of society that God's way is the better way. And his way is being faithful in testing, humble in failure, and full of joy even in the midst of our greatest struggles because we know that in them he is perfecting 
us. And by the way, although he allows us to experience stress and fear in times of uncertainty and great demand upon our every faculty, it is not his desire for us to remain there. The point is for us to know him more through those times of testing, which always result, always result in stronger people with stronger relationships when we keep our focus on him. That is the key in every test to focus on him first and foremost. Cry out to him and don't take your eyes off of him for he will never leave us or forsake us because he is always there with us in every test. Another Scottish pastor and author, I love it, William Arnott, he said it this way. When a deeper sea is heaving underneath and a thicker darkness closing around you. Let your heart go out in truthful, fond desire to the intercessor who trod then upon the mountain and stands now on the steps of heaven's throne. He cannot withstand your appeal. He will come and will not tarry. Over these waters he will walk until he reach you. When Jesus has come, you are at the land. The moment that the master comes, the disciples are home. Let's pray.